This is Get Wired. I'm your host, Lauren Good. Facial recognition technology has been critiqued for its inaccuracies for a while now, but its problems became pretty clear last month when the New York Times reported a story about a black man named Robert Williams who was identified incorrectly as a suspect in a crime. This episode is about the racism that's embedded in different surveillance technologies. And this is a problem that goes back more than 200 years, long before the Robert Williams story. My Wired colleague, Sydney Fusell, who covers surveillance tech, joins us on today's episode of Get Wired. Sydney, you've written a few articles for Wired recently that point to this idea that surveillance technology is reinforcing racism. I think a lot of people think about modern tech when they hear this, like body cameras and supposedly neutral AI. But this goes way back, right? Right. As a reporter, I mostly cover surveillance. And so in the wake of the George Floyd protest, I became really interested in the way that surveillance technologies were used either to oppress people or used as a response from the state or by police to these moments of unrest, of uprising, you know, these really racially fraught moments in history. In the course of my reporting, I really, really relied on a wonderful book from Dr. Simone Brown. Uh, she's a professor at UT Austin. She wrote the book Dark Matters on the Surveillance of Blackness. Um, it's a wonderful examination of uh, surveillance technologies that have been used against Black people going all the way back to, you know, the very first moments in which enslaved Africans were brought back to uh, U.S. shores. And so in um, Dark Matters, she really begins with this fundamental idea of the panopticon. And what is the panopticon? The Panopticon is a prison. Imagine a lighthouse. In the center of the lighthouse is a jailer with a bright light. And then in the rotunda all around this jailer are prisoners. The way the Panopticon is designed, the jailer in the center can see all of the prisoners all the time. But the prisoners on the rotunda cannot see the jailer. And the idea there was to produce this this sense of always being watched in the people in the cells. They'll always believe that they have someone watching them, even if they don't know for sure. And to many people who research the Panopticon, it really sort of shows how power is embedded into the design. All the power is given to the person in the center and no power is given to the people surrounding it. What is Simone Brown's argument or theory about the Panopticon that she's making in her book? So Dr. Brown makes a really fascinating comparison where she says perhaps the purest expression of this idea of something that is both architecturally and psychologically constricting is the slave ship. You have both the architectural design of the people below deck being dehumanized and treated as cargo, people above deck being overseers. At the same time, it has these psychological triggers of people being forced to contain and jail and discipline themselves. And so that's why Dr. Simone Brown makes this comparison between slave ships and the panopticon because these same ideas of dehumanizing people, having maximum oversight and control over them and creating that psychological trigger of policing yourself is exactly what slave ships were designed to do. So how did the panopticon, the idea of it, even come to be? So there's a couple different theories and sort of interpretations of the history. But what we know for sure is that, you know, Jeremy Bentham was an 18th century social theorist and philosopher uh, who worked quite frequently with his brother, Samuel. Uh, Between the two of them, they conceptualized this idea of the panopticon. 
we know that Jeremy Bentham traveled on slave ships and actually Dr. Simone Brown makes this really interesting argument that because the Panopticon was designed around the same time as the original slaves were arising in the U.S., that, you know, the Panopticon itself was influenced by the design of these slave ships. And it's, you know, it's still controversial to this day. For example, there's an argument that Bentham's original intention with the design of the Panopticon was to actually make it more humane because if the jailer in the center is being viewed by all these different people, it's possible that the jailer would act more civilly because they have much more of an audience. I don't find that convincing, but it's been argued. Right. And, and this was all back in the late 1700s, right? But what I'm hearing you say is that in her book, Dr. Simone Brown says that the whole concept of the panopticon, it's something that has endured now for more than 200 years. The reason that this idea of the panopticon has lasted for as long as it's been is not so much about the architectural design of the panopticon so much as it's about the psychological design of the panopticon. Yes, you do architecturally physically trap them inside something, but psychologically that also traps people inside their head. And so this is why you hear the word panopticon now all the time. People use the panopticon to refer to the police state. The fact that when you go outside, there's probably dozens of, you know, CCTV cameras that you're unaware of. So the idea of the panopticon is expanded just from being like a singular building to just being embedded to our day-to-day life. Is it a stretch to call the panopticon technology? Any tool that reliably provides data that you can base the system on, a system of working, cleaning, you set an alarm, you rely on the sundial to decide it's time to go farm. Any tool that performs that function reliably that has real social consequences is, to me, a form of technology. What are some of the other examples that Dr. Brown gives in her book? Right. So Dr. Brown talked about a lot of different ideas that relate to this specific idea of legibility. Legible as in like being able to be read. One of the technologies she talks about is these written passes. And so one of the conditions of life during um, enslavement was anytime a slave was going to leave a plantation, they were given written passes that said, you know, I, owner, give this slave, you know, permission to go to this place. And it would be like a physical description of what they looked like, where they were going, and then what to do if they were found. And they have this expectation that everywhere they go, anyone can stop them, look at the past, check, you know, like, oh, this is for like a curly haired five, five, you know, whatever. And so similarly to the panopticon, what being surveilled does is it sets the psychological process of wherever I am or whatever I'm doing, I'm never to myself. So, Sydney, let's fast forward to now. And we're supposed to be living in a more equitable time period. Technology is supposedly more precise, and it's also supposedly neutral. And then we have the story of Robert Williams. Tell us about this. Right. So in June, the New York Times writer Casimir Hill wrote a story about Robert Williams, uh, a Black man living outside of Detroit, when he got a knock at his door uh, from the police. As it turns out, he was identified by facial recognition software as a suspect in a breaking and entering case. The year before, a man, a Black man, had broken into a jewelry store, stole some watches, and there was a very grainy, low-quality CCTV camera um, that caught, you know, a little bit of the suspect. 
bigger guy, black, a little bit of his face. And so Robert Williams is living his life when the police show up to his house and arrest him in front of his in front of his daughter. And they say, you're the man in this grainy image from the breaking and entering case. And he says, no, I'm not. They go back and forth. And they literally say, the computer found you. And the police just arrested and detained him based on what the database told them. And it was wrong. Yeah. And so to be clear, Robert Williams did not do this. He was not there. No one placed him at the scene. This is what um, activists believe to be the very first time that somebody's been arrested and charged with a crime because of a facial recognition mismatch. How exactly did this happen? So one of the problems with a lot of facial recognition software is that it does not perform as well on darker skinned people as it does lighter skinned people. In a very famous case in 2018, the ACLU found that Amazon's facial recognition product, Recognition, misidentified members of Congress as criminals. And they not only misidentified members of Congress as criminals, they were more likely to misidentify Black and dark-skinned members of Congress as criminals than white ones. Wow. Okay. So in the Robert Williams case, he was detained for 30 hours. He was eventually released. And then what happened next? He starts working with the ACLU. It came out afterwards that the software used by Michigan State Police has an error rate of up to 96%, which means that an enormously high amount of the time, it simply picks the wrong person. However, it is considered to be a objective, quote unquote, way of finding suspects. One of the things that also came out was that when you run a facial recognition match, it creates a list of people who it may be. The list would have been in the dozens. With Williams, the software would have told them that it was not 100% sure that Williams matched the suspect in the photo. So even though the software itself says we're only 60, 70, 80% confident that this person's a match, they still decided to go after him and arrest him and charge him with the crime. It might be helpful to explain just how this technology got so faulty. Right, right, right. So the... Easiest way of thinking about this is just garbage in, garbage out, which basically just means that in order for AI to work, you have to train it on massive amounts of data. And if the data that you train that AI on has um, biases within it, those biases will be represented in whatever the output is. So here's an example. There was a lot of controversy recently around a pre-printed paper uh, from Harrisburg University that claimed that it had an AI system that could predict criminality just from pictures of people's face without racial bias. And so the premise of this paper that you can predict someone's likelihood of being a criminal or being guilty just based on the features of their face is itself a very um, fraught premise. And so this research is really along the same lines as 18th and 19th century um, race science or phrenology. So shockingly, if you had more European features, you're more likely to be virtuous. If you had more African or Asian, non-standard European features, that system would predict that you were more likely to be a criminal. And so going forward to the Harrisburg University paper, similarly, they said that they could do the same thing, but without racial bias. And so um, this caused a lot of outcry in the academic and AI community because it's impossible to create a system that purports to do this when you look at what criminality is, you're not actually looking at the goodness or virtuosity of a person. Really, you're just looking at um, policing data. And so if you were to take a whole bunch of mugshots, feed it into an AI system, and then be like, are criminals more likely to have 
wide noses, a low brow, et cetera, et cetera. All you're creating is a reflection of the prison system because it's not like every single person who ever did anything bad is in this database. Only certain people who got caught doing certain things were in this database. And those mugshots skew towards men of color, poor men, younger men, etc., because that's who gets arrested. Right. So the tech gets skewed, but really what we're talking about isn't just the tech, right? It stems from the people who make the tech. Right, exactly. And it's very important for people who um, use these technologies to really focus on what are the functions and what are the ideas driving the people who make them and the people who distribute them. And so when you think about technology, black and brown people face a lot of these like harmful consequences of technologies that don't necessarily work 100% of the time, but other groups reap the benefits of that. So you have people of color being arrested because of faulty facial recognition, but then you also get like iPhone unlock and you get pay with your face. You get things like that. And so whenever there seems to be some type of like racialized inequity where one group of people disproportionately faces all the bad sides of technology and another group is benefited by the technology. It's almost like we're, we're willing to sacrifice these people and have them face the consequences for the sake of this other group of people. So when you talk to the companies that make this technology, let's say Amazon or Microsoft or IBM, you call them up and you're like, hey, your artificial intelligence product, it's got some problems. What do they have to say about this? So in the weeks after the George Floyd protests began, um, Amazon, IBM, a lot of these major tech companies that they would pause selling facial recognition products to um, different police departments. And, you know, that was considered to be a win. It would have been considered an impossibility only six months ago. But it's really important to point out that while we can put pressure on an Amazon, an IBM, a Microsoft, there's going to be countless startups that we don't even know anything about that aren't going to respond to the same public pressure. Sydney, I'm wondering if any of these technologies could be used for good or if they could ever be truly objective. I mean, is it even theoretically possible to build a non-racist algorithm for surveillance and for policing? Right. So these different companies both acknowledge some of these issues around accuracy and fairness, but also say that these tools can be used in the pursuit of justice. You know, they can use facial recognition to find, for example, missing or exploited children by, you know, very quickly searching um, videos that are themselves exploitive. They've also said that it can be easier for um, counterterrorism operations. Sydney, let's talk about the future. I am wondering where facial recognition technology or surveillance technology in general goes. Does it get better? Does it stop disproportionately affecting people of color? Uh, What happens next? So that's a really complicated question. And so if, you know, we decide for like a nationwide ban on facial recognition, for example, are we thus going to be shooting ourselves in the foot when it relates to counterterrorism or finding children? Um, 
even if we create you know, like regulatory barriers around it, are we still going to see more cases like Robert Williams? And are we still going to see more cases of mistaken identity, of police misuse of facial recognition, of you know racial profiling? Um, so it seems like either way, there's going to be um, a lot of complications around what we what we decide. So going back to you know our earliest discussion of the Panopticon, there's been a lot of attention paid to this idea of smart cities and this idea that you can embed surveillance technologies into cities themselves. Yeah, we hear about smart cities a lot. And I think that the ideas we hear are, hey, they're going to be more efficient, better for the environment, your utility costs are going to go down. And also, by the way, you'll have some protection in the form of cameras. But it seems like it's a it's a slippery slope, right? That line could get crossed really quickly into a kind of dystopian surveillance society. Right. An example would be like smart streetlights. So imagine a streetlight that has a camera on it and can do things like detect certain sounds like breaking glass or burglaries that can alert um, police and EMTs to car accidents faster that can um, regulate itself with traffic. Smart streetlights are considered to be, you know, a good thing, but at the same time in San Diego, they were used to um, surveil protesters. So um, there was reports of arson in San Diego at some of the protests and police were pulling camera footage from smart streetlights to identify uh, different protesters. And so where the city itself is so full of surveillance technology that like the Panopticon, you have to at any point assume that you're being watched. So to bring it all back to the Dark Matters book, And knowing what we know about how Dr. Brown has connected the panopticon, that concept, to the modern technologies we've talked about during this episode, where do you think this is all going? Like, what do you think we can learn from the book as these futuristic technologies are being built? It's really important to point out that the same way that the panopticon went from being a ship to a prison these surveillance tools, their use can change very quickly. And that um, mutability, the fact that surveillance tools can transform from one use to another, you end up with a scenario where it's very difficult to make these different technologies go away. I, I think it's important to note that although these technologies are advancing at even faster rates than they were before, the functions of them in terms of like surveilling and disciplining people really relates more to the past. It really relates more to um, the functions and punishments that we've seen for centuries in America. Sydney, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. That's it for this episode of Get Wired. Get Wired is hosted by me, Lauren Good. You can follow me on Twitter at Lauren Good. This episode was reported by Sidney Fusell. You can find him on Twitter at Sidney Fusell. Special thanks to Dr. Simone Brown, whose work helped inform this episode. This episode was produced by our senior producer, Liz Mack, with additional production help from our associate producer, Alex Jerome and Ben Montoya. Megan Greenwell, the editor of Wired.com, is our story editor. Our executive producer is Alex Kappelman, who also helped edit this episode. Scott Rosenfield is our site director. Wired's editor-in-chief is Nick Thompson, and Julie Shen oversees our audio initiative. Mixing was done by Roy Baum. Theme music by Allison Leighton Brown. You can find us on wired.com forward slash subscribe forward slash get wired. And there's more info in the show notes. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. We would love to hear your feedback. And you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.